This morning's reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And that can be found on page 1095 in the Green Bibles. That's 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Wonderful. Chris, thank you very much for, for reading from 2 Corinthians. Just give me a moment. I need to sort myself out here. Wonderful. And um, a short word of prayer as we consider God's word and think of matching our lives to the plumb line of his truth. Father, help us, please. We're here this morning as men and women seeking to live lives worthy of the calling that you have placed upon us. We're learning what it is to stand up in our identity in Christ, to know truly who we are. We're beginning to recognize and become even more aware of the, the struggle in the heavenly realms. And we ask that you would equip us by your spirit, through your word, teach us, and help us to live victorious lives that give glory to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you've ever done like I have recently and attempted to drive a car with the handbrake on. Um, I, did, I had to do it the other day. Uh, it was so cold that actually that handbrake on our car froze on. So even though I could you know, pull the lever down, I actually had to maneuver the car with the handbrake on. As you may know, it's possible to do that. 
Um, I borrowed someone's car recently and hadn't realized that I, I hadn't completely depressed the handle. Uh, and because the car was new to me, uh, so I wasn't familiar with how it drove, I drove off, and for, for I guess it must have been a few miles, um, there I was driving, thinking, it's a bit of a sluggish car, maybe it's a diesel. Um, this seems to be quite hard work. My foot seems to be quite, sort of, I seem to be pressing quite hard on the accelerator. You know, you, you can drive. It just felt a bit sluggish. It sort of gradually dawns on you. You wonder whether, you know, in the 21st century, do they really make cars that are this sort of bulky and, and sort of sluggish and slow and heavy? I was quite surprised. It wasn't until I sort of stopped and went to put the... I realised, oh, I'd had the handbrake on. The interesting thing is you, you recognise this resistance. You recognise this sluggishness. If you've ever... Am I, am I speaking in a vacuum here? Has anyone ever driven with the handbrake on? Just help me. Oh, look at you all. You're so kind. <laughs> or stupid. I don't know. One of the... <laughs> I have my hand up. I've done that. Uh, as soon as you recognise what the problem is, you do something about it. You act immediately. Oh, I've left the handbrake on. So you, you completely depress the handbrake. And the, the impact, the effect is immediate. Suddenly the car has got a new lease of life. Suddenly it's, you know, it feels so much lighter. There's so much less resistance. There's no resistance. You're able to drive the car as you'd always hoped that you would. We've been spending some time here as a church family looking at what it is to drive the Christian life, as it were. To live the Christian life with a tank full of petrol and a clear road ahead of us. Which is what we believe as Christians God has called us to do. That's his original design for us as human beings. Jesus said, I've come, uh, in John 10.10, 10, I've got a few of these verses that might uh, pop up on the screen. Uh, he said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I've come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. We've seen here, we've read today uh, in chapter 3 and verse 6, the Spirit gives life. God's intention is that we should live life to the full, to the max. But I bet every single one of us from time to time, we become aware of a resistance to that design, to that intention. We become aware if we're honest and we look at our lives and lives of others around us, that we, we don't actually live life to the full. There are things it seems that, that block or resist or reduce or inhibit our, our desire to live life as God intended it to be. One of the controlling motifs of the Bible is that God should bring freedom to his people. Exodus, the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, is, is if you like, a sort of um, a, a microcosm of the whole Bible message. People enslaved are freed by the miraculous intervention of the Lord, of God, in order to live in a new land, in a new way, a new life. Brought out, out of captivity, and into freedom. And that, that, that motif percolates through the whole of Scripture. Jesus says in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we know that in our head, in our minds. We're familiar with that truth. This, this series that I'm teaching on now, I'm simply calling Recovering Truth. It's not as if this is new to many of us. But most of us, I suspect, if we're honest, will be aware of the fact that there's a resistance to that freedom. There's a resistance to that life. In, in heavenly realms speak, there's a battle on or a struggle 
And from time to time, those of us who are in Christ, in relationship with God, through Christ by his spirit, we will experience something of that struggle, that battle. I want to look over the next few weeks, starting today, at how we can identify where the struggle is, where the battle is, and what we can do as Christians to overcome. What we can do to defeat the enemy. And it'll begin with recognizing his schemes. That's why today, the title of today's talk is recognizing the schemes of the enemy. And in recognizing the schemes of the enemy, like recognizing that the handbrake on is on, will have a galvanizing effect on the way in which we live our lives. We'll wake up. If we can recognize where the enemy is at work in this spiritual battle, we'll wake up and be alert and alive to his schemes and plans and strategies, which he has set in place to, as Jesus warned us, steal, kill, and destroy. It's vital that we recognize that that is what he's about. He's out to identify the life of Christ in you, no matter how fledgling or emergent it may be, and he's out to steal it and destroy it. He does not want you to prosper. This may come as news to you, because I look out on you, and you are all lovely. You're all wonderful. You're all highly thought of in your places of work and your homes. You are, you are pillars of your respective communities. You're all wonderful. There is someone out there who hates you just as he hates me. It is the enemy of God. He's out to undermine everything that God stands for. That's what Satan, the, the name given to the devil, is, means. It means the opponent of God. And that's what he is. And in recognizing his schemes, we can become alert to what he's up to. We can wake up. I love that. I'm afraid I threw away the original source. So I, 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 can't, I don't know exactly where this comes from. Uh, but I got hold of it in the, in the week, which is a compendium of the, of the news, comes out once a week. Uh, and it's of one of the prisoner of war camps in Germany in the Second World War, Stalag Luft III. Uh, and it's, it's just a description, it's come out in a, in a biography, it's a description of all the things that the prisoners of war did uh, underneath the, uh, the sort of gaze of the German guards. Um, let me just read you a bit of this. They had to borrow, this is about their escape attempts. They had to burrow through pure sand, lining the tunnels with wood to stop them collapsing. This meant, among other things, stripping wood from 24 chairs, 52 tables, and 4,000 bedboards. And so as the heading in this article, didn't the Germans notice that something was up? And the article says, it seems bizarre, but they didn't. Between the 15th of January 1943 and the 19th of April 1944, camp authorities reported the loss, inverted commas, of 30 shovels, 10 tables, 76 benches, 90 bunk beds, 1,219 knives, 584 forks, 408 spoons, 69 lamps, 1,600 blankets, 161 pillowcases, and 165 sheets, not to mention 300 meters of electric cable. But no former German guard ever admitted to having suspicions. And the article concludes by saying this, it seems they were genuinely taken by surprise. And you sit and think, well, how can that be? Unless they were just complacent, passive, 
dulled to what their enemy in that context was up to. And their enemy, in other words, the prisoner of war, they were able to do an extraordinary amount because the guards were not alert, not awake, not alive to the situation. I wonder whether we from time to time can be a little bit like those German guards. And our enemy is stealing all sorts of things from our lives, robbing us, reducing us, making us ineffective as Christians simply because we're not aware of what he's up to. So what are his schemes? Well, I've got this little sheet here and let me whip through uh, these headings. Jesus um, really warned us that we should not be taken by surprise like those guards because he said in Matthew 16 verse 18 we've looked at this before and I think it will come here we are uh, to Peter he says I will build my church as an expression of the kingdom which is growing and advancing so the church is being built and here's the allusion to opposition the gates of hell or Hades as uh, uh, some versions have it another word for, for hell the gates of hell will not overcome it there is the opposition to the extension of the kingdom, to the growth of the church. Jesus warning his disciples, and by derivation, us. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as odd. The, the, the opposition to the church comes through gates of hell. You know, you, you ever really thought of gates as kind of a strategic military weapon? Uh, I, I certainly hadn't. And, and if anything, they are defensive rather than offensive. You don't often see sort of too many sergeant majors going, right, lads, we're going to attack, grab the gates. You know, you, you, you don't normally think of it as an offensive strategy, but as a defensive one. And actually that stands to reason. The kingdom is growing. Hell is the one that is defensive. Hell is on the back foot. But why gates? And done quite a bit of study into, um, well, just uh, military history over, over the ages. And wherever there was a, a citadel a, a, and a fortress, a castle, uh, with a wall or some, some kind of rampart, there would be a gate for access. And over the gate, there'd be built a gate house with uh, windows and, and turrets to look out on. And apparently what would often happen is if an enemy was advancing, be it just a couple of hundred marauders or an army of thousands, the commanders and the kings or whoever it was who was in the fortress would meet in the gatehouse by the gate in order to survey the scene and see who's coming. What is the nature of this enemy? How many? How big? How strong? How well armed? And so on. And they would, based on what they saw, they would make a plan to counter them. They would devise a strategy. They'd work up a scheme. So whenever you read in the Bible and in contemporary literature of, of gates, it's more than just a sort of something that opens and shuts. It's not just an access point. It is, and particularly I think Jesus' reference here, it's, it's reference to a kind of a concentration of planning. It's where the key thinkers would go to strategize and to devise schemes, plans, and purposes. The gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus is warning us here that Satan has schemes and plans. 
And actually that's been reflected in literature as they've understood, uh, writers down the ages have understood what the Bible teaches. John Milton's classic work, Paradise Lost, begins with um, Satan, Beelzebub and all his devils being thrown out of heaven and they find themselves face down in a lake of sulfur. And before they plan their counter-attack, uh, their sort of revenge, if you like, to, to steal paradise from Adam and Eve, hence paradise lost, it begins with a meeting to strategize. And this is what uh, Satan says to his other cohorts, his, his devils. Though heaven be shut and heaven's high arbitrator sits secure in his own strength, here perhaps some advantageous act may be achieved. By sudden onsets, either with hell fire to waste his whole creation, or possess all as our own, and drive as we were driven the puny inhabitants, or, if not drive, seduce them to our party, that their God may prove their foe. Some kind of awful disaster, some hellfire and destruction, or just to drive them and goad them, or no seduce them, just gently entreated them to our side against God. Scheming, strategizing. Uh, Milton's name, when was that? Early 17th century. Do you recognize that today, early 21st century? C.S. Lewis has written um, a, a classic work, The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape is a senior devil. He's coaching a junior devil in how to lead a young Christian astray. He refers to the Christian as the patient. Uh, and and it's, again, it, it alludes to this strategy that um, devils are kind of uh, 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 assigned human beings, patients, to work on gently, subtly, to wean them away. And uh, here it is, the Screwtape Letters. If you haven't got hold of a copy of this, get one and read it. Uh, it is absolutely brilliant in the way in which it, it reveals the schemes and plans of the enemy. And actually, so it, uh, uh, what it does by, by, uh, by doing so, it greatly strengthens Christian faith. It's a wonderful read. But one of the key things through this book that Screwtape is often impressing on Wormwood, his, his um, lowly uh, sort of trainee, is this. Whatever you do, however you, you work... Oh. However you, scheme of the enemy look, uh, however you work in, in um, distracting your patient, whatever you do, make sure that he doesn't know you're doing it. Stealth. Be careful. Be subtle. And in this little excerpt, um, Wormond has written confessing that he's really worried because his patient has become a Christian. He wasn't a Christian when he first started and he started going to church and become a Christian. And Wormond thinks that Screwtape will be really angry. Oh no, he's failed. But not a bit of it. Screwtape's thrilled. Here's an opportunity. Work hard, Screwtape says, on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who's been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. The enemy takes this risk because he has this curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants, or sons is the word he uses. 
And Screwtech goes on to say, look, here's an opportunity. Let's subtly use it. Work at him even when he's in church and he thinks he's being religious. You can undermine him. You can steer him away in the most subtle of forms. Indeed, he goes on to say uh, elsewhere, provided that meetings and pamphlets and policies and movements, causes and crusades matter more to him than prayers and the simple sacraments, he's ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful down here. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Reflections in literature of the fact that there is a subtle scheming, planning of the enemy to rob us of life. I wonder whether it struck you as strange last Sunday when we had uh, Oliver Wilson here. Sweet, innocent, pure little child. I held him in my arms uh, as we baptized him and welcomed him into the family of the church. Did it strike you as strange, the prayer I prayed over him, which actually is a centuries-old baptismal liturgy? May Almighty God deliver you from the powers of darkness. Seems a little bit over the top, a bit extreme, doesn't it? I mean, what's he done wrong? Little chap, so sunny, so sweet, compliant in my arms, so innocent. May Almighty God deliver you from the powers of darkness. It's a recognition that right at the start of his Christian journey, as he enters into the life of the church, there's a battle, there's a struggle. There are powers of darkness seeking to extinguish the light of faith. Wake up. Be aware of the schemes of the enemy. Now, there's no need to fear. There is no need to fear. Do you remember I made reference to this uh, just a couple of weeks ago? It's a verse. It's well worth learning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God's power has given us everything we need for godly living. God's power has given us everything we need for godly living. I didn't need to look it up because I've learned it. I've needed to learn that. Because there are situations I face in the days and the weeks when I need to know that God has given me everything I need to overcome the powers of darkness. But I wonder, even as we looked, those of us who met midweek, as we looked at our identity in Christ, and we looked at those verses on the back of the sheet, was it two weeks ago now? I wonder how many of you wrestled with that, as I do. You look at that and you think, well, oh, that can't be true, surely not. That's a bit extreme. I really, is that really me? Who was whispering those doubts? Who was seeking to undermine the truth of God's word? Who was seeking to shift you away from the plumb line of scripture? Leaving you to fend for yourself on a daily basis. I wonder, are we awake and wise up to the devil's schemes? Look at these two um, things that he uses. Tactics, arrows, I'm not going to touch much on other than just to say it's uh, mentioned there. In, uh, that's it. In a, that famous passage in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against... Um, oh, can we have... <laughs> Remember Ephesians 6? Thank you. Uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers and authorities of this. Oh, no, it's not that one. Sorry. So have we got 617? I'm so sorry. Did I put it in the wrong order? Yeah. <laughs> he, take, he basically says, take the shield of faith. 
with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, of the enemy. Don't worry, uh, Joe. It, it talks... Is it there now? There we go. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Oh, that's even the wrong verse. I don't know what verse it is. I'm so sorry. It talks about the flaming arrows of the enemy. And we can extinguish them with the, the shield of faith. The, the idea was just in those days, they used to take an arrow, dip it in pitch, light it. And then wherever they fire the arrow, and wherever the arrow stuck, the fire would spread. It's this sort of image of words, thoughts of the enemy, that little darts, little arrows the arrows into our life to cause maximum damage. Uh, so that's one aspect of the devil's schemes. But the one I want to just focus on uh, as I come into land here is the second one um, from Ephesians 4 and verse 27 when he's uh, Paul into the church in Ephesus is talking about um, uh, the Christian lifestyle and how to live. And he says this, And do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give the devil a foothold. And that word foothold is the Greek word topos, from which we get um, our English word topography. And it literally means a a place uh, or an area. Um, Philosophically, it it could refer to a a sphere or an unseen realm. In its oldest sense, it it means a a kind of, um, it's a sort of legally owned piece of land. Don't give the devil, legal access. We might use a, a modern um, uh, analogy of an aeroplane trying to come in to land. Now, an aeroplane needs a, an airstrip, a piece, of, a piece of flat land, in order that it can come into land. And uh, in effect, what Paul is saying here is don't allow the devil to land in your life. Rip out the airstrips, take away the space, the topos, the place where he can begin to land, settle, and have some kind of jurisdiction, some kind of influence in your life. Resist him, Paul says elsewhere, and Peter does in one of his letters. He's a legalist. We've seen that with Job. He seeks permission. And if we give him permission, because he has no power, his power has been defeated and, and, and smashed at the cross. Historical fact. He has no power except that power which we allow him to have when we let him land in our lives. He's seeking with his schemes and strategies to land in your life, to establish a base to begin to have a hold over the way in which we think and act and behave and believe. If we allow that pattern of landing, if we continually give the devil topos, he begins to have quite a strong hold on us in certain areas of our lives. Paul, do you remember, and we'll come back to this in the next few weeks, but he talks about uh, tearing down and dismantling strongholds. A stronghold is just where the enemy has been allowed to have a strong hold on us. Strongholds, things like hurts, habits, hang-ups, those things basically are rooted in sin and come about as we allow the enemy topos, a place, a space in our lives.
as I've been preparing this material, I've, I've come aware, I've become aware of times and places in, 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 just in my Christian life when I've allowed the devil to land. I've given him topos. He needs no second invitation. One was over a period of time. Um, in my uh, secondary education, I went to a boarding school. I went away from home. Boarding school is great. Cold showers and runs in the morning before breakfast and all that kind of wah, stuff. It's good in, in many ways. I, I don't want to make a comment on independent education or boarding education. All I want to observe is that what it did in me over time was it, it, it made me actually incredibly independent. Now again, independence in and of itself is not a bad thing. But actually what happened was I got to the top of the school and um, uh, of all things, they actually made me head boy. It acted like a stamp of approval on the independent attitude that I developed over those years. Now in and of itself, fine. But actually when you took me out of that context and placed me in other contexts, it had become topos where the enemy could energize an unhealthy sense of independence and arrogance and pride that it allowed to, to grow in me. So guess what? When I met a beautiful girl called Jo and we got married, how do you think an attitude that was basically, I'm brilliant and independent, I don't need anyone else, goes down in a marriage? What happens wonderfully by the grace of God in a marriage is that the schemes of the enemy that have taken root and had topos become apparent. And I've realized that actually a lot of my marriage has been me dealing with that area of stronghold that the enemy had on me. It was inhibiting the way in which I related to, to Joe and to others actually. And by the grace of God, he's continuing his work of, 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 of salvation, of, of uh, sanctification in me. There may be other examples that you can think of or becoming aware of. Recently, when I came here, I was very aware that my predecessor was an amazing preacher. He is an amazing preacher. If you ever had the privilege of hearing him, I've heard several of his tapes. I know people who've listened to him for quite some time. Never a dud sermon. Brilliant teacher. And actually, I could feel at times a fear as I prepared, thinking, I won't be as good. I just, I won't be able to do this. I won't be as good kind of comparing myself to, to Sean, my predecessor. He'd be horrified, I'm sure, if he thought that it's nothing to do with Sean, you understand. It's nothing to do with anything. It was actually my giving topos to a, an irrational fear in me. Because I knew I'd been called to be here. I know I've been trained and skilled. I know I have certain gifts and abilities that the Lord has given me. And actually, irrespective of all of that, I know he loves me. And I'm secure in his relationship. And yet this little airstrip had allowed the enemy to land and begin to root an irrational and unhelpful and debilitating fear in my life. I needed to recognize it and do something about it. The handbrake was on and I needed to recognize it, lift it off so that I could drive freely. I finish with this. Our model here on earth, Jesus, John 14 and verse 30. I'll not speak to you much longer, he says to his disciples, preparing to leave them. For the prince of this world, referring to the enemy, is coming. He has no hold on me. Jesus, our model, 
No airspace, no, no uh, airstrip, I mean. No topos, no way in which the arrows of the enemy could stick. No foothold for the enemy to gain purchase. How? Because he was in constant relationship, purifying, cleansing relationship with his Father in heaven. And the wonderful thing is, for those of us who fall short of Jesus' standard, and that's every single one of us here, is he's given us the toolkits. I touched on it last week in a fun way in the all-age service. But we'll look at this spiritual toolkit that he's given us in order that we can recognize the schemes of the enemy and do something about them. We're going to look midweek, and I'd love to encourage every single one of you to come. Whether you count yourself a member of the church or not, just come. Either on a Tuesday, it's on the back of the service sheet, a Tuesday across in the hall, or Wednesday at the other venue. And we'd love you to come and to explore some of the tools that God has given us. We're going to look at the, the power of repentance. And particularly within the context of repentance, the ability to recognize what the enemy is doing so that we can outwit him outsmart him, not give him topos, no foothold in our lives, so that he can't establish the base of operations. There's no stronghold in us of the enemy, so that we can indeed live life in all its fullness, so that Almighty God may deliver us from the powers of darkness and restore us in the image of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. stand together. We'll just have a moment or two before Fiona and Gordon lead us in our final hymn, How Deep the Father's Love. Maybe just as we've been looking at these scriptures and recognizing the battle which we're called to fight. There may be ways even now the Spirit just revealing to us, helping us to recognize